Hello, fellow kids, and welcome back to What is Politics? So, in episode 3, we saw that most human societies over the past 12,000 years or so have been organized into political hierarchies, where some people have more decision-making power, more wealth, and more rights than other people. And we saw that hierarchies serve three related purposes. They facilitate efficient group cooperation, they reduce conflict by determining the winners and losers in advance, and they also facilitate the exploitation of less powerful members of the hierarchy by more powerful members of that hierarchy. And then, we saw that the left-right political spectrum is all about where one stands in regards to these hierarchies. If you support the inequalities of a given hierarchy for whatever reason, then you're on the right of that issue. And if you oppose those inequalities, then you're on the left. In other words, the left-right political spectrum is all about class conflict. Classes meaning the different ranks in a hierarchy. And these classes and hierarchies can be political, economic, cultural, and international. Owners on top, management in the middle, workers on the bottom. Government on top, citizens on the bottom. Or in a patriarchal culture, you'll have men on top, women at the bottom. Medieval king on top, nobles in the middle, serfs on the bottom, etc. However, there are also a bunch of other popular definitions of the left-right political spectrum floating around. The market versus the state. Big government versus small government. The individual versus the collective. And equality versus liberty. In episode 4, we looked at how words and definitions are communication tools, and we saw how all of these definitions fail as communication tools in two important ways. Number one is that they're historically inaccurate, so they cause confusion when reading history books or when making historical analogies. And the whole concept of left and right is an analogy itself to the early French Revolution. And more importantly, number two, is that they make us focus on superficial aspects of politics that don't give us any insight into the actual divisions and political coalitions that exist in the real world. Like in the real world, we don't see left-wing or right-wing groups forming coalitions against each other based on the size of government or how much collectivism they want. We see that left-wing coalitions want big government when that advances different types of equality, like more social programs, and they want small government when that advances equality, like looser immigration or less prisons. And right-wing coalitions want big government to enforce hierarchies, like more police and stricter immigration rules, and they want small government when that advances hierarchies, like promoting so-called economic freedom, which just means more economic hierarchy, where business owners can do whatever they want without democratic interference, and workers only have the rights that their level of bargaining power confers on them. Today, we're going to look over different historical periods to see who is classified as being on which side of the spectrum at different times. In order to show all the haters that keep writing to me, arguing about how this or that wrong definition of left and right is actually the correct one, that on top of making us confused, those crappy popular definitions of left and right are also historically incorrect, and that they only pop up around the time of the Cold War for propaganda purposes. And that will give us the tools that we need in order to answer the frequently asked question, why is it that fascism is supposed to be on the far right of the political spectrum, and communism is supposed to be on the far left, when Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union seem to have so many important similarities? They were both heavy-handed dictatorships that enslaved a good chunk of their people. They both used nationalism to maintain the power of the ruling party. And they both engaged in imperialism and in some degree of wealth redistribution. They are both the archetypical totalitarian society. But we're going to do that in a bonus mini-episode, because this episode got too long. Okay, so let's get into it. How do we know that hierarchy versus equality is the historically correct use of the terms left and right? No one sat down and invented these terms, or defined them for us in some book, and there aren't any books that trace how people use the terms over time to help us figure it out. 
at least not that I know of. The terms emerged as an analogy to the early part of the French Revolution in 1789, where those delegates to the National Assembly who supported the revolution sat or stood on the left side of the room, and those who supported the monarchy and the status quo occupied the right side. Where you use an analogy like this, you're inferring that there's some salient feature that links the people that you're referring to in your time with the right or left sides of the National Assembly in 1789. So what is it about the right-wing populists versus the left-wing populists, or the socialists versus the capitalists, or the communists versus the Nazis, that links them to the left and right sides of the French National Assembly of 1789? Since there's no particular book to tell us what that salient feature is, we need to read all the books. But since we don't have time to go over all the books, we'll take a look at who's considered to be on the left and the right in three different historical periods. First, the OG French Revolution, where the terms come from. Next, the Third Republic in France, about a hundred years later, where the seating of the National Assembly was consciously based on the left-right analogy to the French Revolution. And finally, we'll look at who's considered to be on the left and the right of the various branches of the socialist movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And with each period, we'll test out whether or not the popular definitions of market versus the state, individual versus the collective, big versus small government, or equality versus liberty make any sense as definitions of left and right. Let's start with the French Revolution. If we want to understand the left and right sides of the National Assembly in the French Revolution, it helps us to understand what the revolutionaries on the left were trying to overthrow, and what the monarchists on the right were trying to preserve. The system that existed before the French Revolution, which was referred to as the Ancien Régime, meaning the old system or old order, was the tail end of the feudal order that had existed throughout much of Europe since the 10th century. According to the dominant ideology in Europe in the Middle Ages, which carries through the Ancien Régime period, the universe was one giant hierarchy, the great chain of being, with God on top, his angels below him, and then the Pope and the worldly monarchs appointed by God below them. And then you had the three orders of human society, the clergy, the nobility, and the common people below them. In terms of hierarchical order on earth, you had the king and the pope on top, the nobility and the high clergy below them, and then the common people and the lower clergy below them, and below them were the animals, and below them the plants, and below them the minerals. And each one of those categories under God had its own hierarchy. The angels were divided into the seraphim, who were ranked above the cherubim, the little sweet cherubs, and then there were different ranks of nobility and of clergy. Men were ranked above women, and adults above children, masters over apprentices, bigger animals over smaller animals, animals over insects, plants had their own hierarchy, as did minerals, gold above silver, above bronze, above other base metals, down to rocks and dirt at the bottom. Any person who tried to usurp his or her place in this endless hierarchy was revolting against nature and against God himself, putting the whole chain in jeopardy of collapsing, just like when the angel Lucifer first tried to defy God, disrupting the perfect universe and committing the first sin. Now in the thick of the Middle Ages, this hierarchical ideology more or less matched reality in terms of who held political, economic, and cultural power. A king normally had more power, more wealth, and more status than a nobleman. A nobleman usually had more power, wealth, and status than a commoner. A man usually had more power and wealth than a similarly ranked woman, etc. The political, cultural, and economic hierarchies of the society all mutually reinforced one another. And since the laws of states tend to reflect the balance of power of the different actors in a given society, the laws of these medieval states reflected and reinforced these hierarchies. But over the centuries, as Europe slowly recovered from the fall of the Roman Empire, polities got bigger and more centralized, and roads became safer, all of which meant that trade and knowledge could be shared across long distances again, as they had in Roman times. 
As a result, the source of power shifted away from controlling land and being able to squeeze grain out of peasants towards being able to accumulate cash from trade and taxes and fees. And as a result of that, the mutually reinforcing aspect of the system's hierarchies was slowly disrupted, and the actual balance of power no longer reflected official ideology or the law. Eventually, merchants, who were members of the order of the common people, and who derived their wealth from increasingly important commerce, often became more wealthy and more powerful than many nobles, who were getting squeezed into the middle class and even poverty due to inheritance rules and the increasing need for money. And as the nature of the economy changed, the king needed more and more cash to run his state and to fight his wars, and he began selling noble titles for cash to wealthy commoners to impose more and more taxes that commoners had to pay and that the nobility and clergy were exempt from. And while serfdom had largely been phased out in France by the time of the French Revolution, the nobility and clergy still controlled many resources like mills and forests and lands that people depended on. And because they wanted cash above all, they imposed all sorts of fees and levies on the commoners for the right to use those things, and other fees that the commoners had to pay practically every time they sneezed. So by the time the revolution got started in 1789, as a response to a series of crises and famines and wars that the king had bungled his response to, the ideology and worldview of the Middle Ages was still in place, but it no longer matched reality. And it was also in competition with new ideas and new ideologies of the Enlightenment, which had emerged out of the resumption of travel and trade and the invention of the printing press, all of which facilitated the exchange of ideas and knowledge across long distances and among greater numbers of people. And it was this ancien regime, a degenerated and increasingly unstable feudal order that the delegates on the right side of the National Assembly wanted to preserve as much as possible when the revolution broke out, and that the delegates on the left side of the room wanted to replace with a society based on Enlightenment principles. So what sort of policies did the people on the right and left sides of the Assembly want to enact? The delegates on the right side of the National Assembly, who were mostly nobility and high clergy, originally just wanted to maintain the existing system as it was, so they could keep all of their traditional privileges and advantages. The king was the ultimate authority, the nobility and clergy have special status and privileges and are owed their tithes and other fees and dues, and the commoners pay all the taxes, while the nobility and clergy are exempt. As events progressed, they quickly made compromises so as not to be completely left out of the discussion, like accepting the idea of a constitutional monarchy with elected representatives. But they were playing defense, trying to only accept the absolute minimum of change. So for example, the right's proposal for an elected body was one where the commoners and the nobility and the clergy each got one-third of the vote, even though the commoners made up 98.4% of the population. And they wanted the king to have veto power over the assembly so as to render it as powerless as possible. In other words, they wanted to maintain the political, economic, and cultural hierarchies of the day as much as possible. Meanwhile, the delegates on the left side of the assembly were mostly commoners, but from the bourgeois class, meaning wealthy and middle-class people from the urban business and property-owning classes. And in the assembly, they were mostly lawyers and wealthy merchants, along with some lower clergy and a few Enlightenment-influenced intellectuals from the nobility. And what they wanted at first was more political and cultural equality. In terms of political institutions, they started off demanding things like equality before the law, in the form of a constitutional monarchy, with freely elected representatives and equal representation for all, without regards to their status as nobility, clergy, or commoner. And they wanted cultural equality, in terms of eliminating the legal distinctions between nobility, clergy, and commoners altogether, and all of the economic privileges that came with clerical and noble status, and all of the onerous obligations that came with commoner status.
and they wanted to reduce or remove the influence of the Catholic Church on society and have equality of religious expression for minority religions like Protestants and even Jews and Mohammedans. In other words, they wanted people to be treated as individuals before the law, rather than as members of collective social orders. And in terms of economics, they wanted the state to respect private property and other rights and freedoms of individuals versus the idea of the entire country being the domain of the king who could confiscate property at will. They also wanted everyone to have an equal right to engage in trade versus large-scale trade being a privilege meted out by the king to his cronies, while local trades and crafts were controlled by guilds. Meanwhile, outside the National Assembly, the urban workers, artisans, and shopkeepers, known as the sans-culottes, which today means people without underwear, but back then meant people without fancy silken breeches, were pushing the range of debate in the assembly towards more and more radical equality, which would later be described as further and further to the left. Although they weren't delegates to the National Assembly, they played a leading role in driving the revolution by engaging in all sorts of actions, rioting, storming the Bastille, petitioning the National Assembly, and generally putting pressure on the delegates on the left side of the assembly to adopt more and more egalitarian positions. The sans-culottes wanted things like direct democracy without representatives, like in ancient Greece, where every citizen participated in government. In other words, total political equality. And they wanted the abolition of all large estates and large businesses, and the redivision of land so that every citizen could have an equal plot. And they wanted price controls for basic staples, instead of having their survival being subject to the caprices of the market. In other words, they wanted extreme economic and political equality. Within a couple of months, the whole Ancien Regime feudal legal order was abolished. Nobility, clergy, and commoner were now equal individuals before the law. And the noble and clerical privileges and tithes and tributes and levies and fees were history. Now the debate inside the assembly was about whether or not the king would be able to assert a veto over decisions made by the elected assembly, which was the position of the right. Or would the elected assembly have the ultimate say, as demanded by the delegates on the left? And then eventually, encouraged by the sans-culottes in the streets, some of the delegates on the left of the assembly adopted the position of ending the monarchy entirely and establishing a republic, meaning a public body that at least symbolically represents the entire public, versus a monarchy that's the personal domain of the divinely appointed monarch. And eventually things went off the rails, and heads started rolling, and you ended up with a new form of government every few years, a revolutionary dictatorship, a reactionary dictatorship, Napoleon's emperorship, a restoration of the monarchy, another republic, another monarchy. Anyhow, let's test our various definitions on the early French Revolution. First, the idea that the right represents pro-market forces and that the left represents pro-state forces. We already saw in episode 4 that this whole concept is incoherent and based on a false premise because the market and the state are not inherently opposed to each other. But just because something doesn't make any sense doesn't mean that people weren't using it that way. In any case, if you look at the National Assembly, it's almost the exact opposite. It was on the left side of the room, which was full of bourgeois lawyers and businessmen, where you had people interested in the right to trade freely without interference from the state. It was the left side of the Assembly that issued the Revolutionary Declaration of the Rights of Man, which guaranteed a right to private property in Article 2 and Article 17. And it was the delegates on the right who were defending the Ancien Regime system where the king handed out trading privileges and had the right to confiscate property and where guilds controlled prices and regulated supply and competition and controlled who was and wasn't allowed to practice trades. This makes zero sense with a right-wing market versus a left-wing state paradigm, but it makes perfect sense if the divisions between hierarchy versus equality. 
the right-wing delegates wanted the state to reinforce the economic hierarchies of the Ancien Régime. The delegates on the left wanted to eliminate those hierarchies in favor of equal treatment before the law. And in terms of trade and markets, it's important to understand that in this era, capitalism was barely in its infancy in France. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations had only come out 15 years earlier. Unlike today, when people associate free trade and markets with massive inequality, many theorists, including Adam Smith, saw markets as something of an equalizing force. They believed that without the power of the state propping up certain privileged actors, that the market would generate more equality, which made sense in the context of a world where the king and his cronies maintained their riches by state monopoly and selective privileges. What about the idea that the right represents individualism and the left represents collectivism, which is a popular paradigm among so-called libertarian capitalists? Well, again, if we look at the National Assembly in the French Revolution, it's the exact opposite. The bourgeois left-wing is the side that was influenced by the Enlightenment and that cared about the rights and freedoms of the individual, and that enshrined them in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Meanwhile, it's the noblemen and the aristocratic high clergy on the right side of the assembly who wanted to maintain a system where rights and privileges were based on collective identity castes, nobility, clergy, and commoner. The right also wanted everyone to continue to be subject to the authority of the Catholic Church, and there's nothing more collectivist than a hierarchical, centralized, organized religion. So here, in the time of the original left and right, which our current left-right analogy is based on, the individual is firmly on the revolutionary left, and the collective is squarely on the traditional right. What about the idea that the left represents big government, and the right represents small government? The right in the French Revolution was defending a system of absolutist monarchy that had spent the last 300 years trying to centralize power into the hands of the state and of the monarch. The right wanted to use the power of the state to protect their power and privilege. It was the left that wanted to limit the government's powers vis-a-vis -vis the citizen. And you can see that all over the Declaration of the Rights of Man, drawn up by the left. See Articles 2, 4, 9, and 10, limiting the state's authority and enshrining the freedoms of individuals to assemble, worship, or not worship, and to own property. Again, big government is on the right, and small government is on the left. And what about the idea of equality on the left versus liberty on the right? Well, we know that can't be correct, because the famous slogan of the left in the revolution was liberty, equality, and fraternity. The right wanted neither liberty nor equality. And there were other slogans floating around among the revolutionaries at the time, which are less famous today, but which reflected the same idea. Liberty, equality, security. Liberty, equality, property. Liberty, equality, strength. In all of these slogans, liberty and equality are always indispensable and inseparable. Contrary to Cold War propaganda, equality and liberty naturally go together. If everyone is politically equal, then no one is in a position to dominate anyone else, or to restrict their freedom. And whereas the 1789 delegates on the left weren't thinking much about economic equality, the poor and precarious living sans-culottes outside of the assembly certainly were. And the same principle applies to wealth inequality as to political inequality. Wealth inequality restricts political liberty, because economic power is political power. The more wealth you have, the more power you have to make people do things. Wealth doesn't just give you the power to buy all the He-Man action figures you want. It's the power to hire people and boss them around all day because they depend on your property to live. And it's the power to make people pay rent for your property. The reason your boss tells you what to do all day long and not the other way around is because you depend on his property to live. And the more wealth inequality between you and the people who need your property, the more power you have to tell them what to do, to make them work in harsher conditions for less pay. It's actually inequality and liberty that are opposed to each other. When you have political inequality, 
aka hierarchy, it means that you have some people controlling the behavior of other people, and thereby restricting their liberty. And again, economic inequality is political inequality. Remember that what makes a tyrannical state government so powerful is that they control a huge amount of wealth and resources, which they use to pay armies and police to enforce their rule and to restrict everyone else's liberty. Wealth and power are almost the same thing. Economic inequality between the state and its citizens is what allows the state to restrict the liberty of its citizens, in the same way that economic inequality between citizens is what allows the wealthy and powerful to restrict the liberty of the poor and powerless. Okay, so now let's fast forward about 100 years to the Third Republic period, which goes from 1870 to the start of World War II in 1940. In the Third Republic, all political tendencies are allowed representation in government for the first time since the early years of the French Revolution. By this time, France is once again a democratic republic with a national assembly, where representatives are elected by universal male vote and are organized into political parties. And in the spirit of the first national assembly, the Third Republic representatives were seated by party, from right to left on a spectrum, specifically according to their political ideology, with the members of the most right-wing party sitting on the far right of the chamber, and the representatives from the most left-wing party on the far left side of the chamber. And this is still the tradition in the National Assembly of France today. So who sat where? At first, on the far right, you had aristocratic parties who wanted to throw away the legacy of the French Revolution and go back to a traditional conservative monarchy. And later, after the popular support for monarchy had faded away, you had ultranationalist anti-Semitic parties seated on the far right, who wanted only ethnic French people and Catholics to have the rights and privileges of citizenship. And a bit to the left of them, but still on the right side of the room, you had more liberal constitutional monarchist parties who wanted a monarchy that would rule in the interest of the bourgeois business class, with voting restricted to big property owners. And you had Bonapartists who wanted to bring back the nationalist, imperialist-style dictatorships of the Napoleon Bonaparte family. And on the center-right, you had Republican bourgeois parties who wanted the Catholic Church to have a strong influence in society. And on the left, you had secular Republican bourgeois parties who wanted the Catholic Church to be completely removed from public affairs. And then, once organized socialism became an important movement, the far left side of the room was dominated by various socialist parties, and the secular Republicans moved to the center-left of the chamber. So which definition of left and right makes sense given these seating arrangements? In the market versus the state paradigm, the state is supposed to be on the left and the market is on the right. But here you have big state monarchists and megastate imperialist Bonapartist dictators on the right. And also on the right, you had the bourgeois monarchist parties that wanted to use the power of big government to enforce the power of the market. On the far left, you did have the socialists who wanted the state to interfere with the market. But it's in the center, not the right, where you have the fans of the free market minimal state, in the form of the right and left Republican parties. So big fail for the market versus state paradigm. Big government versus small government is a similar story. Big government parties on the far right who support monarchy and dictatorship and using big government to enforce economic hierarchy and ethnic and religious hierarchy. Big government also on the far left, but to enforce economic and political equality. It was the center and the center left who wanted the smallest government that would mostly enforce contracts and stay out of your bedroom and your place of worship and respect individual liberties. Plus, outside of the assembly, you had a strong anarchist movement, considered to be on the extreme left, that wanted no government, or at least no state government. When it comes to the idea that individualism is supposed to be on the right, and collectivism is on the left, once again you have a similar picture. 
You have the collectivist, hypernationalist, and religious parties on the right, the economic collectivist, socialist parties on the left, and the individualist, secular parties on the center and center-left. And the equality on the left versus liberty on the right paradigm is also a total fail. The right was full of parties that wanted neither equality nor liberty. The right was where the supporters of the monarchy and Bonapartist dictatorship sat. It was the bourgeois center that had the liberal parties, who believed in political liberty and the limited sense of the state being restricted in its powers versus the individual. And on the left, you had the socialists, who by and large also believed in equality and liberty, but who thought that liberty is only possible once there's economic equality. Again, the only paradigm that makes sense is hierarchy versus equality. And we see the same type of pattern if we shift our focus to look at the different branches of late 19th and early 20th century socialism. At that time, we could divide up most socialists into three main branches, anarchists on the left, revolutionary party socialists in the middle, and parliamentary socialists on the right. And I'm not the one making up these left-right designations. Socialists have always been really good at insulting each other. And you can read polemics back and forth, where the anarchists are childish ultra-leftists, and the revolutionary party socialists are secret right-wing autocrats in disguise, and the parliamentary socialists are right-wing social fascist sellout renegades. But what matters for us is that the anarchists are always described as being on the left, and the parliamentary socialists are always on the right, and the revolutionary party socialists are in the middle, usually insulting the other branches. Polemics aside, all of these socialists theoretically had more or less the same goal, socialism, but they differed on how to get there. People today often define socialism as state or government control of the economy, but that's largely a relic of the Soviet Union and of Cold War propaganda. Traditionally, the defining element of socialism is worker control of the economy and of society. And while the state may be one way that workers can exercise that control, a majority of socialists in this period, and certainly some of the most historically important socialists like Marx and Engels and their followers, and of course all of the anarchists, were against the state as an appropriate instrument for socialist government. Instead, they expected that socialism would be a world of direct democracy, with autonomous communes and cooperatives coordinating with each other voluntarily across the world without any state controlling things or getting in the way. This is why Marx often used the phrase, the free association of the producers, rather than the word socialism or communism to describe his ultimate aim. So on the left, you had the anarchists, people like Mikhail Bakunin, Peter Kropotkin, and Emma Goldman who thought that the way that you get to a society of autonomous communes and cooperatives controlled by workers is via a revolution, which overthrows the state and capitalism at the same time. For the anarchists, the state was simply an instrument of oppression used by the ruling class to subjugate oppressed classes. It was just a machine that the business-owning and landlord classes used to make rules that kept them rich and kept workers and tenants poor and subservient, just like medieval states kept the serfs under the control of the nobility and how the ancient Roman state kept the plebs under the rule of the senatorial families. As the leftmost movement of the left, the anarchists were suspicious of all hierarchy, political, economic, cultural, or international, and there was no question of participating in electoral party politics or state government of any kind. In Bakunin's famous words, if a socialist tried to take power via the state, they would end up, quote, beating the people with the people's stick, unquote, meaning that they would become a new ruling class, lording over the people, but in the name of the people. At the center of the socialist movement, you had the Revolutionary Party Socialists, whose leading figures included Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, Rosa Luxemburg, and Vladimir Lenin. These socialists had more or less the same ultimate goal as the anarchists, but they had a fundamental disagreement on how to get there. The Revolutionary Party Socialists agreed with the anarchists that the state was an instrument of oppression. 
The formulation that I gave earlier about the state being an instrument of class domination actually comes from Engels and Marx. But the Revolutionary Party socialists also believed that you couldn't successfully complete a revolution without using the power of the state to prevent the upper classes from taking back power. However, after that task was completed, the state would become obsolete now that there were no more classes to dominate. And whereas the anarchists to their left rejected any participation in state politics, the Revolutionary Party socialists believed that it was necessary to participate in electoral politics whenever possible in order to improve the conditions of the working classes as well as to increase the popularity of socialism and to strengthen the movement in general. Hostility towards the state diminished somewhat by the early 20th century, as these socialist parties started achieving some electoral successes, and also some success in pressuring non-socialist governments to pass socialist policies. For example, aristocratic conservative Chancellor Otto von Bismarck in Germany implemented the world's first public health insurance system in 1893, as part of a failed attempt to take the wind out of the sails of the growing socialist movement of his day. With these developments, some prominent Revolutionary Party socialists like Karl Kautsky decided that while revolution was still necessary, maybe some kind of permanent state would be an appropriate instrument to help coordinate all the workers' cooperatives and communes in a socialist society. These developments also led some revolutionary socialists to give up on the revolution altogether. The Parliamentary Socialist Movement, originally founded by Ferdinand Lassalle around the time of Marx, took off in the early 1900s, as Eduard Bernstein, a follower of Marx, broke from revolutionary party socialism and theorized that you could just keep passing more and more socialist reforms in an elected parliament in a capitalist country without the need for revolution at all. Things like eight-hour workdays and minimum wages and more rights for workers, and eventually you'll get to socialism that way, or not. All that matters is that things continually get better and better for workers. This movement gave birth to many successful socialist parties all around the world, which still exist today, though by now most of them have renounced socialism, even nominally. So again, if we look at the socialist movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and we apply the popular definitions of left and right, market versus state, individual versus collective, big government versus small government, and equality versus liberty, all these definitions fail miserably. Let's start with the market versus the state. I mentioned earlier that the market was seen as a potential equalizing force at the time of the French Revolution. Well, this was still true in the early 19th century when the socialist movement was taking off, and you had many socialists who thought that the market would eliminate the privileges and unfair advantages that capitalists got from the state to keep them rich. People like Thomas Hodgkin, Lysander Spooner, or Pierre-Joseph Proudhon loved markets, and most of these pro-market socialists were anarchists of one sort or another, on the left wing of socialism. So long as human labor isn't allowed to be rented on the market, and you don't have individuals owning land or capital that other people depend on to live, they believe that allowing people to trade their possessions freely was the best way to allocate resources, and that it would generate equality and prosperity. Revolutionary party socialists in the tradition of Marx believe that markets should be replaced with some form of voluntary democratic resource allocation, which no one really seemed to ever define very clearly, but which would happen without any state, or else with a minimal state. It was the right-wing parliamentary socialists who wanted the state to interfere the most with the market, and who wanted to nationalize more and more industries over time, though they tended to support small business and markets for consumer goods. So we have pro-market anti-status on the left, and then small-market big-status on the right, and neither markets nor the state in the middle, and you also had some anti-market anti-state anarcho-communists on the left as well. Market versus state is mishkvibble. Big fail. When it comes to the idea of the left and right being about big government on the left versus small government on the right, the socialist spectrum was the exact opposite. On the left you had the anarchists, 
who wanted no state government at all. In the middle, you had the Revolutionary Party Socialists, who wanted big government for like five minutes, or maybe a year or two, and then it should fade out into either no state government at all, or else maybe a minimal leftover state to help coordinate between communes and cooperatives. And on the right, the parliamentary socialists were happy to keep increasing and increasing the size and power of the state over the economy, and maybe one day it might become obsolete, or maybe not. Big government is a sweet gig. And of course, the idea of individualism on the right versus collectivism on the left also doesn't work. All socialists are economic collectivists, but it was on the anarchist left that you had the most concern for individual rights and freedoms. Anarchism being very much about liberating the individual from all hierarchies, with famous individualist anarchists like Pierre-Joseph Proudhon and Emma Goldman. In the center, revolutionary party socialists like Lenin made fun of anarchist concern for what he mocked as petit bourgeois rights and freedoms, which he saw as excuses for capitalist domination. Even today, Leninists call anarchist Noam Chomsky a liberal for defending classical individual rights like freedom of speech. Meanwhile, on the right, parliamentary socialists in democratic capitalist countries also tended to respect popular constitutional protections for individual rights, and they wanted to expand them. So you had economic collectivism all across the socialist right and left, but you had it coexisting with a high degree of individualism on the left, and then a little less so on the right, and the least individualism in the middle. And the same goes for equality versus liberty. The anarchists, who are the most egalitarian socialists, were also the most libertarian socialists. And libertarian socialism is another term for anarchism. And like I keep saying, liberty and equality go hand in hand, and they in fact require each other. The revolutionary party socialists in the middle were also very egalitarian, but they were less precious about liberty and about other individual rights as we just saw. And when Lenin and the Bolsheviks took power in Russia in 1917, they quickly threw liberty out the window the second things got difficult. And we'll look at the circumstances surrounding that in another episode. Meanwhile, the parliamentarians on the right were the most tolerant of economic inequality, and also the most comfortable with the political hierarchy of the state. Until the Bolshevik Revolution, that is, but that's another story for another episode. Meanwhile, the parliamentary socialists also tended to place a high value on the constitutional liberties of the representative democracies that they served under. So pre-Bolshevik Revolution, you had the most liberty and the most equality on the left, and then on the right, and in the middle you had the least liberty, and the second most equality, and on the right you had the least equality, and the second most liberty. A Once again, the only paradigm that makes any sense for how 19th and early 20th century socialists classify themselves on a left-right spectrum is hierarchy versus equality. The anarchists were on the left because they wanted the most direct path to political, economic, cultural, and international equality. The revolutionary party people were to the right of the anarchists because they believed that it was necessary to participate in hierarchical state government and to seize the state, even if only temporarily, to achieve the same end goal. And the parliamentarians were on the right because they were willing to tolerate long-term economic inequality and to engage in long-term and maybe eternal participation in hierarchical state government. Also, when World War I broke out, they sided with their respective nations in the war, abandoning the principle of international equality to the horror of all the other socialists. So, to sum all of this up, and you can do the same exercise with any historical period you want, up until the Cold War when everything becomes a mess for reasons that we'll get into in the follow-up mini-episode. Left and right are very clearly not about the size of government, or whether you want more or less state control over the market, or more or less individualism or collectivism. It's about what you want to do with the power of government. What do you want to accomplish by regulating the market, or by freeing up the market? 
To what end are you invoking the collective good or the rights of the individual? Whether you favor the market, the regulatory state, collectivism, individualism, cosmogismatism, if your goal is preserving or advancing the interests of the people at the top of the social pyramid, you're on the right. If it's to advance the interests of the people at the bottom, you're on the left. And voila. Hopefully that's enough to shut up all the haters. <laughs> Ideally, I like to recommend some books to read, but even though the left and right are fundamental to our politics, shockingly, as far as I know, there is no good book or article that really explains left or right, or the history of these terms. Everything I could find is half-assed, half-baked, muddled, confused doo-doo crap. If you know of something, please let me know. I put this together by reading all the books over the years on all the subjects I've discussed. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please tell your friends and tell your social media friends and also your parasocial media friends about this podcast. Like if you know someone with a popular podcast or a YouTube show who has some reach, who might give the show a signal boost, that seems to be the main way that people can find out about podcasts and YouTube shows nowadays. So please do that if you can. And also, rate and review it on iTunes. Like and subscribe with the bell on YouTube. Ask me any questions or corrections or criticisms in the YouTube video comments or by email at worldwidescroats at gmail.com and send me some of that Patreon money so I can keep doing this. Next, we've got a little bonus episode for everyone who gets confused about why fascism is on the far right and communism is on the far left when the USSR and Nazi Germany are supposed to be the prototypical totalitarian societies with many important similarities between them. And then after that, we'll be doing some political anthropology, where we'll look at things like why some societies are egalitarian, while others are hierarchical, or why some societies have more freedom than others, and why some societies have more or less male domination than others, and how and why this changes over time. Until then, see ya! See ya.